Hello and welcome to our podcast, God's Peace. I am your host, Pastor Nicholas Candle. Today I'm joined by Ron Holmgren and Jamin Holmgren. Ron is the pastor of the Hawkinson Apostolic Lutheran Church. He's also a member of the Central Board. And Jamin is his son, who's a member of the Vancouver Congregation and also is the CTO of Infinite Red, a programming company. Jamin and Ron, thank you for joining us. How are you guys doing today? Oh, fine. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks a lot, Nick. So, Ron, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? A little bit about myself? Yeah, uh, your upbringing. Uh... Okay. Uh, well, um, yeah, I'm a, um, 65 years old, soon to be 66. Uh, I was raised in just north of Seattle in a community called Alderwood Manor. Uh, my parents, Clarence and Harriet, and uh, eight siblings, raised in the church, um, left the church at a young age um, and joined the military. Spent three years there and then three years in a town called Port Townsend, Washington. Moved to Clatskanie, Oregon in 1978, was converted in 1978, or might some, some would probably like the, the terminology, I was given the grace to repent and believe the gospel in 1978, living in Klatskanai. Met my dear wife, Elizabeth, and uh, we were married in 1979. The two of us have nine children. Jamin, who is with us, is number two in that lineup. Uh, I've been... But number one in, in both of your hearts, I assume. Well, now... Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a wonderful family, and uh, we are now living in Battleground, Washington, uh, where I'm serving as uh, the pastor here at the Hawkinson Church. Just a brief overview there. How long have you been the pastor of Hawkinson for? Well, I'm coming up on 21 years. Um, I started in uh, the year 2000, February 1st, 2000. And uh, so this February 1st will be uh, 21 years for me here in Hawkinson. And then I hear you're slated to retire. Yes. I've given my notice. I did last at the last annual meeting. Uh, March 1st would be my day of departure from actively serving as a full-time minister here. That must have been kind of weird to come to the point where uh, hanging it up. How's that been for you? Well, um, I guess it's the only time I've ever done anything like this, uh, this magnitude, but due to my age and... um, perhaps just um, needing to back off a little bit from a very, very busy life, uh, wonderful life. I have no complaints uh, about being in the ministry this long, but it has been, uh, you know, it's a pretty heavy load. I I served together, of course, with Pastor Phil, my my coworker, wonderful, wonderful. Phil Wilson. Yeah, Phil Wilson. Wonderful guy to work with, but uh, we carry a pretty big load. And I'm just, uh, I just, I, I believe it's time uh, that the church looks to the future and uh, perhaps a younger man to take my place. And uh, I pray that that transition will be, um, will be a good one. How big is the Hawkinson congregation now these days? It's, it's kind of difficult to really put a number on it. Um, I used to just go by uh, communicant members. That would be adult mm-hmm. members, confirmed age and above. And we used to serve um, pretty close to 400. It's down a bit now. Um, mm-hmm. 
so you know just extrapolate out we've we've often said six to seven hundred people yeah uh, attend here like on a communion sunday mm -hmm. uh, that's gone up and down a little bit but it's been kind of kind of consistent yeah and uh prior to that you were the the pastor of of Klatskanai Apostolic Lutheran Church in Klatskanai, Oregon, uh, where where I grew up. Uh, so you did that for how many years? Um, I started there. I think you were six months of age when mm -hmm. I first uh, climbed those. Nineteen eighty-one, nineteen eighty-two, somewhere in there. Yeah, yep. climbed those steps up to that pulpit, and so I believe I spent eighteen years in the ministry there in Klatskanai part time. Mm -hmm. I had full time work as well, and so a small congregation. Uh, I think there was about 40 to 50 members. And uh, so, yeah, 18 years there before I moved here to, to Hawkinson to uh, begin my full-time journey as a pastor. So do you remember that day you first climbed those stairs? What was that like? Oh, oh without a doubt, I remember it well. I, I remember it quite well. <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was uh, how do I put it? One of the most nervous moments of my life. Um, there was, we, our, our pastor, Pastor Kenneth uh, Nelson, was no longer able to speak, so we were having rotating pastors coming through. One of them, one day as I came into the church and walked to the front to greet him, he just turned sideways, greeted me, and said, you will say the prayer today. <laughs> and I turned around, walked back to the pew, sat by my wife, and said, I think there's something wrong with this man up here. <laughs> and uh, halfway through the first song, he got up, walked back, and motioned for me to join him. And so I went reluctantly, to say it mildly, and we sat there. And then he, just before the song ended, he looked at me and he said, well, if you're nervous, uh, here's an altar book. You could read this prayer. And mm. I did that. Okay. And that was my first time in the pulpit saying the prayer. And I did that for about a year. Different pastors, ministers would come through and ask me. I guess the word got out until one time uh, actually a day that i was absent from church i think i was sick that day my wife was there elizabeth was there and they announced that i would be speaking even though i wasn't <laughs> there and i hadn't even been asked and uh, she failed to remember to tell me when she got home oh okay she claims that she didn't want me to worry for two weeks instead of mm. one because the next sunday when i was in attendance at that announcement they said and next week ron will be speaking <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a bit of a shock. So do you remember what that first uh, sermon was about then? Oh, I do. It was Father's Day. What year mm. would that have been? 1982 uh, or would it have been? Let's see, you were born in 81, so in 1982. Yep. And uh, it was Father's Day, so I took the text where Jesus talks about, you know, which one of you fathers, if your son asks him for bread, would give him a scorpion, etc. Mm. Okay. So, I thought it was appropriate, and it lasted about uh, 10 minutes, and I was done. Mm -hmm. I remember a wonderful man um, of the congregation shouted from the back pew, well, hey, Ron, why don't you read Psalm 90? And mm -hmm. so I read Psalm 90, and then he suggested another psalm. So we stretched it out to about 16, maybe 18 minutes. <laughs> and I finished, sat down. They had the song. Afterwards, uh, just kind of a funny, these little things, but uh, George Salme, I remember the old guy there from Klatskine, a wonderful bunch of elderly people there. Mm -hmm. And people were coming up and greeting me and trying to uh, maybe console me for my feelings or whatever. But, 
he walked up the center aisle and reached out and shook my hand and he said, no, don't worry, Ron. Uh, at the mill, we give people 30 days before we fire them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So oh, that's, it, was, yeah. it was wonderful. Those people were so kind and yeah. so patient with this young man. And, you know, that's kind of the way it was a lot in those days and maybe yeah. still is in some circumstances where we don't have a, you know, we don't, the Apostolic Lutheran Church hasn't been known for having trained pastors. We have right. a seminary, Nick, you, you attended that, and it's getting more, more and more, um, I wouldn't use the word popular, what would you say, usual for mm -hmm. people to be trained. Um, but, you know, I was taken out of a dump truck and put into the pulpit. Yeah. And, and I would say possibly because, you know, I, I would attend Bible study. I had a real hunger for the word. I was a new convert. We really appreciated the new life that God had given me in Christ. And I asked questions. Oh, I asked questions at the Bible study. And that may have started them thinking, hey, maybe yeah. we should see about using this young man. You know, mm -hmm. That's a possibility. Yeah, they saw they saw something in you. Uh, so was that was it an was it even an option, I guess I should say, to go to a seminary at that point in time? Well, there was a there was a lot of conflict between seminary trained and, and those who weren't. Um, mm -hmm. Not everywhere, not everywhere. I was raised in a church. My uncle was a pastor. He was not anti-seminary at all. Mm -hmm. uh, he was yeah. very friendly. That was with Alvin Holmgren, Pastor Alvin, Alvin Holmgren. Holmgren. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but there was there was uh, there was conflict uh, in the ministry there. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful that it is gone. Uh, yeah. Really, I can say it's gone, although. Some people may disagree, but um, so at that time, yeah, it was, it was, I was a part of that. <laughs> um, I guess you could say culture of the Apostolic Lutheran Church, where mm -hmm. you just started a man in the pulpit and, and hoped mm -hmm. that uh, he didn't go far off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah. Was there a transition for you from uh, just being asked to speak every once in a while to being a called pastor in Cotton? Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I wish I had the dates, but I don't. Um, I spoke, you know, maybe once every couple months and then maybe once a month. And Pastor Ray Curdy served us twice a month. He was the Castle Rock pastor and he became a regular. He was there for Bible study and very, very dear old man that I, I spent a lot of time with. I loved him dearly. A very encouraging man uh, for me. And he kind of, I, I believe behind the scenes, he was encouraging the congregation to use mm -hmm. me more. Mm -hmm. And I did hear that he finally one time said, I will speak once a month. You need to put Ron on. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was once to begin with, but then eventually twice a month. And okay. that was pretty much my schedule there for many years, twice a month at Class Can I. Then I was called to uh, Castle Rock. I would go every mm -hmm. other month to Castle Rock, trade with the pastor there, Ray. And then I would go to Astoria and trade with Ben Johnson, the pastor there, once every other month. So I was, I was speaking, you know, three and sometimes four times a month then yeah. eventually. Yeah, I remember that uh, growing up, going to Castle Rock, going to Astoria. Of course, we had cousins in both places. So that was, that was always fun to, to see them, including Nick, who grew up in the Castle Rock uh, conversation. In the Ca Castle Rock congregation, Nick is one of my cousins, of course. Uh, and, but I, you know, I'd imagine that working, you know, you were, you had an excavation company, I, I suppose in the early days, it was some, you know, some different 
jobs that you had, but you had an excavation company, were working in construction. Every weekend you had, uh, you were speaking, uh, traveling a lot. I'm sure that that was a pretty, you, you didn't have a lot of time off, I, I guess I should say. No, no, it was, uh, it was a heavy schedule. It was very difficult. It, you know, it really became extremely difficult uh, being in business for part of that time. I had other jobs as well, but uh, I remember uh, teaching confirmation for a week in Klatsk and I, and the first day, one time as we started, I had run off early to, I think, haul some rock or something with a dump truck and tried to get, you know, that done real quick before, I had to be in class and my truck broke down on the way mm. back. And I had to, I think that was the, the days before cell phones. Well, maybe I had my old brick cell phone. I can't remember, but somehow <laughs> I got in contact and warned the, the class I'd be a couple hours late, but yeah, you know, things like that. Um, I did Western mission travel. Other, uh, other congregations would ask me to come and I was burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Uh, it was very stressful. And the family, including you, Jamin, you were drug mm -hmm. everywhere with me whenever it was possible. <laughs> yeah. uh, I remember making trips to uh, Butte, Montana. You remember mm -hmm. fly flying out there? I do. It's the first time on an airplane. Yeah. In fact, we had services in that house and there was a moose, wasn't there, in the front yep. yard at that time? I remember we, that. It was, we ended yeah, up was laying down. Yeah, postponing a, uh, for about an hour as the cops came to get the moose out of the front yard <laughs> of the house that we were having church in. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking of, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, as a young father, who's also a pastor of young children, or a pastor and father of young children, I always wonder how you find that balance of um, how much you make your kids go to. How was that for you? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> if my son wasn't on here, I'd probably be more free to talk about him. But I, <laughs> I, you know, I don't say that I regret um, I, I pushed it pretty hard. My wife and I believed that the children should come. Um, and so we used the term drug. We drug them around uh, everywhere we could. I mean, there were some places, of course, where they couldn't. But maybe I, I, I kind of like to think that some of the benefits is that they got to meet other people. They saw what other congregations were like. And we were together. Um, mm. I just, I, I really, family has always been so special. Large family, a lot of children love that part of my life is the best part. So how do you balance it? Well, I don't know if you can. And I think you need to somehow you need to. Uh, your first vocation is being a husband and father. Uh, that is your first vocation. Uh, being a pastor, unfortunately, overshadows it a lot of times does right so like yeah. normally my 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 inclination is if there's a church service i'll try to go to it so if we have a sunday evening service even if i'm not speaking i'll try to go um bible studies special events but i don't always my kids are age five age three and age two uh and uh I don't um, make them come with me there's no other young families that come to bible study there's hardly any in church. And I felt like if I, my, my wife used to come when we didn't have any kids, but uh, I feel like if they all came, then it'd just be chasing them around. So it, it is something that's yeah. just, I, I don't know. Everybody does it differently. Yeah. I, I can say, you know, speaking from my perspective, uh, being the PK, the, the, the pastor's kid, that uh, it certainly wasn't always our favorite thing to do as a, as a kid, you know, to, to go to, you know, Wednesday night, Bible study or whatever it was Friday night or whatever it was at that time. 
you know, I'm sure that many times we would have preferred to stay home and, and play or do whatever we were doing. There were benefits though. There were a lot of benefits. We did meet a lot of people, a lot of people. I mean, I know so many people now because of, of those travels. I have memories from lots of different places. So I think like anything in life, there is like, like dad said there, it's, it's impossible to really balance, but there's sort of trade-offs of benefits and, and, uh, other things. I, I think that probably, you know, just to give my, put my own two cents in here, there's maybe a line where you can cross to the point where your kids maybe start resenting it a little bit. And at that point, then it becomes too much. But when it's seen as a blessing, then yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's, and, and sometimes it's not seen as a blessing right away, but it can be later. It was also to inject this too. It was also a burden on, uh, Elizabeth, my, my wife, um, mm -hmm. uh, to use, a, a an ex, uh, one situation that I was in, uh, I believe it was here in Hawkinson. I was a guest speaker and I was preaching and one of the children threw up, I think. Or maybe it wasn't another church. I don't remember. But anyway, there's a commotion. But my um, the way I preach, uh, my my experience from the pulpit is that I don't always focus on the individuals in the congregation. I may scan the congregation, but I didn't even realize what she had to go through. Mm -hmm. She was taken care of. Another another time uh, we were in Astoria and the children were in the back pew. Jamin, you were probably one of them. And uh, I think so. I didn't know the story. <laughs> the pews weren't secured to the floor. And I think you and probably Kendra and Melanie and maybe even Meredith were standing up and rocking the pew. <laughs> and both, all of you had your hands over the back of it as it fell. So it fell on your hands and boy, oh boy, <laughs> emotion, wooden floor and screaming and crying. And the, whoever was playing the, no, my wife was playing the organ. Elizabeth was. And I think we hear the story about those two ladies who sang so beautifully in the front just valiantly kept singing. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't stop. It was something. But, you know, there's yeah. just a lot of those things that happen. And, um, but I, I think there were times when I, I did, uh, we did, I guess you could say, expect a lot from the children. Uh, but I, I hope overall it, it was a good experience mm -hmm. for them. Yeah, that's another unsung hero of the church is um, the pastor's wife. You know, I, I marvel at my wife. We only have three children. You guys had nine. How did she ever do that? You know, it's not out of the ordinary for one of my kids to run up the aisle during the service or, you know, just random stuff like that. And with nine, how do you keep track of them? I mean, at that point, you know, I was old enough. Kendra was old enough. Uh, you know, we could, we could start helping. Right. But my mom is, is pretty incredible. She, she does a lot and she, you know, I've she barely ever, I've never heard her really complain about stuff like this. She just does it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, from that standpoint, it was just what we had to do. So, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was extreme. I am extremely blessed with my wife, Elizabeth. Uh, so many things. And, and, you know, in the very beginning, I have memories of Jamin when I was first preaching as a little boy sitting in the front pew watching dad and then eventually laying over and falling asleep. You know, <laughs> the sermon wasn't all that interesting to him. But, you know, that was the early days. But as he said, as time went on and we had more children than the elder elder children would be able to help in some mm -hmm. way. But, you know, God bless Elizabeth, my wife. Mm -hmm. uh, she carried a heavy load, a heavy load. So, and, uh, so I, I think that that probably played into your decision to decide to take the full-time position at uh, Hawkinson to some degree. I know that 
running a business and being a pastor and, you know, sometimes even being a missionary was a lot to do. And then Hawkinson reached out, was it 1999 or so that they reached out to you and, and said that they were looking for a new pastor at that point? That's, that's right. Um, it was, like I said, burning the candle on both ends. I think there were a number of years where I had maybe five or six weekends off uh, from the ministry, from serving as a preacher somewhere. And I was, you know, I would even be called to do funerals in Klatsk and I for people that weren't members. I'd have to take a day off from work. Uh, it was, you know, we always had food. The Lord has always cared for us, but sometimes it, you could begin to resent how much you had to put in and then everything else suffered, including family and maybe finances, etc. And I'm so thankful. I remember Carl Nematalo, blessed uh, an older minister that I loved dearly and helped me a lot. He, he would remind me that the Lord takes care of us, you know, but Toward the end, before I got the call from Hawkinson, I was burning out. I was I was getting resentful. It's, I'm ashamed to say it, but I was getting resentful. And I think that had a huge play, like you said, Jamin, that mm-hmm. when the letter came, I did receive a call earlier from another congregation as a part-time pastor. Mm-hmm. It just didn't seem possible to make it. It would have included a, a, a quite a long-distance uh, move, and then I'd still be looking for work there to s- supplement mm-hmm. the income. Hawkinson offered full time and it just seemed like the right thing to do. At that time, it was Dick Barney, who was the pastor there for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but he had told the congregation he would only serve for a couple of years and then he was going to move on. And that's why they started looking for another pastor at that point, from what I understand. Right. right. Yeah. We got a letter if we would consider it. I answered that I would consider it. And I ended up being the only candidate at the time. And uh, we, we talked and, and Hawkinson made it possible for us mm-hmm. to, to make the transition. So you mentioned uh, Carl Nematello and Ray Curdy. Were there any other pastors in the church that had a big influence on, on your life and getting you started in the ministry? Oh, there were. There were many. Um, you know, my uncle Alvin, of course, in Seattle. I loved him dearly. He was a great pastor and preacher and theologian. Um, George Wilson, when I was first converted, was one that was, uh, uh, he was the chairman of the Federation. And I used to, I remember just shortly after being converted, listening to him on special services in Portland and how the Lord used him, you know, as a gifted preacher. Um, You know, I could go on and on. I could list probably 20 of our own pastors from the Apostolic Lutheran Church that were very encouraging, very enlightening to me and helpful in the early days. Ray Curdy, of course, being there so much. Um, uh, Carl Nematalo as well. And you mentioned Dick Barney. Oh, I could, I could just go on and on about different ones. And I met many from further away as well and got to know them over the course of years and uh, have appreciated so many of our ministers as we serve together. One of we- my um, big struggles with uh, being a pastor, and you helped disabuse me of this, but um, uh, at least when I was starting to feel some sort of inner call, I thought, man, I could never be a pastor. And uh, one of the, th- just, just looking at the image of who a pastor is, you know, and one of the things that really helped me was just hanging out with you and hanging out with like guys like Jay and Chuck and realizing that, you know, these guys are actual people. They're not saints. They're not, uh, they're not stuffy or stodgy. They're, they're, they're real guys. They have personalities. They have hobbies. They have things. Um, and, uh, 
and, and so it is it was was there any of that for you to like look at the office as something that was above you oh absolutely um if any of you are listening remember my uncle alvin i hope a lot of you do he was a treasure for us as a congregation as a federation god uh gifted him well he he was very very different and um, I loved him dearly, but I was, you know, that was my view of a pastor and his personality was so very different than mine. And to this day, I, well, you know, my, my wonderful coworker, Phil Wilson, he said it well, he said, you know, we knew Alvin Holmgren. And when you came around, we wondered what hayseed Holmgren did we get, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, he did it and I love Phil for his, his humor. And, you know, That's the funny. point is, is that we're all very different. But we're, like you say, we're human. And so learning to get to know pastors, um, which even Elizabeth, my wife, says she used to just love and sit, to sit around after church somewhere and listen to the preachers talk mm -hmm. and hear their stories and get to know their personalities. Because, you know, little children especially, they see you up in the pulpit and they think, wow, this is some special guy. And we're not. You know, we've been <laughs> given a vocation, but we're humans. Which, uh, which pastor was it? who told you when you were early on uh, that uh, about the, the old dog and the new dog barking in the neighborhood. Oh, that was actually my great uncle Cornelius Forshog. Oh, okay. You know, I was preaching here one time and probably stirred up some interest because I was a young new preacher. And as we were visiting later, he said, yeah, in that old Norwegian accent, yeah, Bill, you know, and there's been an old dog barking in the neighborhood. People get used to the sound and they don't pay much attention. But then you get a new puppy. And that <laughs> yipping and yelping and they all come to see the new puppy. <laughs> and, you know, Nick, that's kind of what's going on over your way, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Nick's the new puppy. Oh. Yeah, it's the old dog. Well, it is It is fascinating to me to, to um you know, I, I think about my own journey, you know, it was 10 years ago last Sunday that I spoke my first sermon that was seven and a half minutes long. Wow. Uh, Jesse Ajo told me, I thought I'd gone for about, I remember it, I called Ron, I called, you know, I talked, he talked to me about that text and he was talking about just how rich of a text it was. And so I memorized it. <laughs> I still have the text memorized. It was John 8, 31 to 36. And uh, I, I, I practiced in the shower. I practiced everywhere, just 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 talking about it because I didn't really know how else to do it. And so it was one of those things where I just got up there and said what I had to say and sat down. And Jesse Aho asked me, "How long do you think you were preaching for?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know, fifteen, twenty minutes." And he goes, seven minutes and thirty seconds from amen to amen." <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just just an interesting thing, but. Uh, I know for me, there's been some growth in my life over the years of your ministry. Did any of your views change or um, the, the way you looked at different things, perhaps even the Reformation or? Oh, yes. Um, you know, as, uh, as I started, of course, like, you, you know, as we talked, it was just from the dump truck to the pulpit. And uh, a lot of what I did, I believe, was I studied, you know, I read and I prayed and I, I hope that some good was was found in the message, but a lot of it was what you'd heard before, uh, what what the common understanding of the text, uh, as it was preached perhaps at, you know, special services or something, you'd hear a, a renowned preacher in the church give his understanding, and you, you pretty much st stuck with that. Not to say that was bad, but that was kind of the way it 
it seemed to me that you preached. You preached what you had heard. And without a lot of time to study, in fact, very little time, and also not necessarily encouraged to do much study beyond just reading the Bible, it, I feel, was a very limited uh, understanding that I had. And as time went by, and especially in the transition over here to Hawkinson, um, and being full-time in a large congregation, and then many challenges from parishioners who would come to the office. Uh, for instance, you know, if a young couple would come to the office and they may have been spending a lot of time on uh, the radio or other media um, hearing other understandings, they would maybe have a simple question like, why should we baptize our baby? Mm -hmm. And what seemed, my way of putting it, and it's not really this simple, but what seemed to be in my generation where you would answer, well, that's what grandpa did, and that's what dad did, and so that's mm -hmm. what I do. Uh, they were looking for a little bit more substantial response, and that kind of forced me, and I had the time and the opportunity as well to spend some time in the Word, of course, first and primary, but then looking into the history and the theology of the past and how things developed and why, really why we believe, practice, and teach what we do today. It mm -hmm. sent me to the scriptures and to the church fathers and history itself. So how would you answer that question today? Why should we baptize our babies? Well, the, the, the simple answer is the teachings of our Lord that we would baptize all nations. Now, we're not going to have a, a session on baptism here, I'm sure. That was <laughs> well, not yet. That, that'll come up, though. <laughs> yes, yes. But I also believe through my uh, research, if you want to use that, my study from substantial sources uh, and from our heritage uh, we can find a clear teaching from the times of the apostles right on up through the church fathers that baptism is a means of grace intended for all who believe and all who are brought into the kingdom uh, through that wonderful sacrament. So um, it has become a much more precious teaching and belief system than I had before because perhaps just not much emphasis was placed on it as a child we did uh, observe and recognize baptism as a very, very special event. And perhaps I wasn't listening to my uncle, pastor at the time, to his teachings as well as I should have, but I know he appreciated it uh, and the sacrament of the altar as well. Was there, was there a point where you were kind of learning these things where you had sort of a, almost like a, like a double take, like, whoa, like this is, you know, maybe a realization of, of why we believe and maybe kind of things clicked into place or was it more of a gradual process over time? Well, I think both. Um, I don't know that there was this light bulb that went on all of a sudden, but early on here in, in, in Hawkinson, and again, I attribute it to the, to the circumstances. God works in his way, but the circumstances of serving a large congregation with uh, very diverse understandings here, Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, some, a, a dear friend of mine, uh, Jacob Ajo, who's out your way, Nick, uh, he was around the area and we got to talking and I was thinking that, you know, we really should dig into some history. And he was very encouraging to me and we sought for a lot of resources and we started and I asked the board here if they would, uh, if they would like, if maybe I would do some history seminars for the church congregation. 
And I dug into it. And I mean, I dug into it and with Jake's help, of course, but I started to look for history books. I found many resources, good resources, and started to read and prepared. And I did four sessions of church history here at the Hawkinson Church, very well attended. Three, 400 people would come in the evenings, uh, Friday evening, and spend a couple hours listening to me. I had PowerPoint. I was really trying to be something when I was starting. It was something that we weren't really used to with seminars. Well, in the process of doing that, I was confronted with things that, uh, you know, just kind of took me back a little bit. And history has a, it's vital, you know, eventually I suppose we'll talk a little bit about the history of the Reformation, but mm -hmm. um, history is, is a good teacher and there are resources. And so as time went by, I was exposed to the historic teachings which included, of course, the biblical teachings, which is a historic record of the teachings of Christ and the apostles. And right on up through to our modern day, I'm still being exposed even today to great theologians that have helped me. And I have, I have come to become very Lutheran in theology, uh, not just because it's my heritage, but because I have learned to appreciate the wonderful depth of it and I guess you could say the most important thing is the assurance that comes with it. So that's just kind of in a nutshell. I, I like to say that the, the, the killer feature, <laughs> to put it in, in modern terms, the killer feature of Lutheranism is the assurance. And Absolutely. That, that tends to open doors when, when someone says, what is it with Lutherans? Like, what's the big deal? And that's what I start with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's... It's very biblically founded. It's it's mm -hmm. well uh, well defined in our theological um, confessions of the church, and uh, so I, I think am it, unashamedly a Lutheran. I think as we dig into the Reformation, I'm going to let kind of Nick introduce that part of it. But as we do that, we'll see sort of why assurance was such a a, a big deal for for Luther for sure, and then why it's kind of. Contri contributed to where we are today. And it's, it's not just a Martin Luther thing. It's, it's every human needs that assurance, but. So why don't you, why don't you or Ron explain what, what, what do you guys mean by the assurance? What is that? The assurance? Well, maybe uh, again, like, just like Jamin just pointed out, uh, we could take Martin Luther for example. I mean, that when you look at the beginning stages of his life as uh, I believe God used him in that way, to contribute to the, the great reformation, he struggled with assurance. Uh, his, his assurance was at best shaky and at worst uh, non-existent. You know, I mean, if you read just some of the common uh, history books from Daubinier to the more modern ones, you know, F.F. Bruce or whatever, they always go to the time when he was, you know, arguing with God and thinking that God hated him. Uh, that he would never measure up to God. He did not have assurance that he was a child of God. Well, you can extrapolate that out to any one of us, the three of us today, as we're talking, you know, where do you find your assurance? Where do you find that peace which passes all understanding? And that's where I love, you know, the basic tenets of the Christian faith, which are included in an ecumenical sense, justification by faith, etc. But there are so many other doctrines that, that either feed or take away from that and that are undercurrents that have an effect. And that's where I have found such a joy in, in, in the teachings of the, 
the Lutheran um, confession. When Luther, um, when the when the Reformation came about, what was the what was the church like? The church, you know, it's interesting. And just recently, and I, I want to give credit to a to a historian, a modern historian that I I just absolutely appreciate. And uh, that's uh, Dr. Daniel Van Voris from uh, Southern California, from uh, Irvine. Mm. Um, and he's a theologian and a professor at the Lutheran Seminary or University down there. And he has, he, I just love his way of presenting history. So I give him some credit, but just not too long ago, and I, I watched it some years ago, but he, he tells us that, you know, the church at the time of the Reformation really wasn't as bad off as we might think. Now, they were mm. theologically. Mm. They were corrupt. You know, the church was. But it was the only church, basically, the Catholic, the Roman church. And, uh, and the laity. The laity was enjoying life. You know, they were peasants. Sure, it was harder times and all this and that. But, you know, think about things like uh, indulgences. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about assurance, okay? The church you know, offered, ass offered assurance, and all you had to do was pay. And, you know, I mean, think about it. You know, if somebody said for a hundred bucks, I could have my sins erased, I'd go to the bank. Right. You know, I'd go to the bank. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even the doctrine of purgatory is interesting. I was watching Daniel Van Boris the other day. He says, you know, I don't want anybody to know this, but, you know, I kind of wish purgatory was still being taught. <laughs> and, you know, he's kind of joking around about it. But right. the point is that the laity at that time thought, well, you know, I'm not doing so good, but I got a second chance. Right. I right. might have to spend 10,000 years in purgatory, but I can eventually get out of there. Mm -hmm. There were some teachings that were not biblical. Yeah. They were terrible. But the assurance that the church was offering at the time, that's all they knew. So they really weren't opposed to it. You could see that assurance was something they were looking for. They were just kind of coming up with their own innovations to make that happen, though. That's right. Innovations. Yeah. So what, what exactly was an indulgence? Well, indulgences were uh, from the Pope on down. They were uh, they were offered to the people to, um, you might say, for remission of sins. But not only for yourself, you could also buy indulgences. And they were actually pieces of paper with a signature and a stamp or a seal from the church that stated that your sins were uh, paid for. Uh, they would get them from the so-called treasury of the saints. You know, Peter, of course, being such a great man in the history of the church, must have deserved a lot of things and more than he needed. He had more merit than he needed. So here was this treasury that, you know, you could buy some of his merits or some other saint, maybe Mary herself. And by paying the church a certain amount of money, you would get this piece of paper, and then you would be assured that your sins were forgiven. It even went so far, especially at the time of Luther, when they were trying to raise funds for St. Peter's church as they were building it in Rome, where you could buy uh, indulgences and get your parents or grandparents out of purgatory early. Uh, how did that go? They, they called it the, the first jingle or... Um, like yeah, an when a coin in the coffer rings, a uh, soul from purgatory sings or something like that. Springs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, springs. Yeah, yeah. Something like, like that. coin in the coffer. And, you know, I remember my wife and I on our Reformation tour many years ago in Germany, we saw an actual box that was an indulgence collection box. Hmm. And you can just imagine, you throw a, whatever they were, I don't know, what was the German money at the time, uh, 
in there and you got your little piece of paper, you went home and mm-hmm. you had some form of assurance that uh, even though sadly <laughs> it was absolutely unbiblical. Yeah. And that but, was one of the big problems then was that they seemed to be, you know, it was works-based. It was based on these things that you would do. And then they were just coming up with all these different things that weren't in the Bible and uh and that was one of the big problems that that was at that time mm-hmm. so um that's that's interesting like nowadays if somebody was coming up with innovations that weren't in the scriptures i feel like um the church would 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 have enough discernment to say wait a second where'd you get that from but how was it like for the laity at that time why didn't they oppose some of these things well to begin with, the laity was, for the most part, uh, illiterate. Mm. And, and, and by la- of- uh, just to stop you for a second, the laity refers to the people who are not part of the uh, the priest priests and the, all the other people that are kind of right. non clergy members of the church. Non clergy, non clergy, right? or non uh, they would call them the religious, and that mm. could include the you know all of the clergy. It could include. Um, monks it could, could right. include the nuns those who had given their life and were serving in a ministry which right. later we'll get into that maybe yep. perhaps one of the wonderful doctrines of the church of the reformation was vocation but yeah mm-hmm. they were that anyone else was laity um and so the the bible was not in their language it was it was kept in the latin language the priests were the only ones that read it and a lot of the priests didn't even read it they just had maybe a little book of things to say, and they learned that as they were trained. It was an illiterate um, population, so they didn't question anything because whatever the religious brought, the priests and the cardinals and the bishops and the pope himself, that was the religion that they, they trusted. Yeah, in. so if the Bible was in Latin, even if they could read, they would have been read German or, or wherever you were. I don't think very many people were reading Latin in the 1500s. No. Um, so they couldn't even have read the scriptures. That's, that's crazy to think about. It, it is. Kind of... very, very few. Uh, there were others besides Luther, as you know, Wycliffe and um, some of the others. And, uh, you know, clear back to John Huss, they were able to read and they were able to read Latin. So the, there was always this push toward we need to reform the church for, for long before Luther. Yeah. But it wasn't successful like it was in the time of Luther. What's ironic about that is the Latin was called the Vulgate, and that actually means, from what I understand, for the common people, right? It was like Vulgate was like vulgar, the common, the right. people, and was, it went away from that. It went back to the time when it was in Greek or Hebrew, right? And then you had, you know, the uh, Jerome and his Vulgate or the common language of the Latin population who could now read it, which. Uh, to a German, many, many you know, centuries later, it was no longer common. Luther was, when he, so he was actually a doctor of theology. He was, uh, he was not considered a laity, right? Right. You know, we, the old uh, traditional story, he was frightened. He was going to law school and he was frightened by a thunderstorm, lightning storm and made a vow to become a monk. Mm. ended up uh, going to this St. Augustine, um, what do you call it? Uh, monastery. Monastery, or, thank you. And uh, yes. started there um, training to be a monk and uh, 
over the course of time, of course, again, without assurance and struggling terribly in his, uh, his senior Staupitz saw in him perhaps something that was very special. And so he sent him first to Rome, where he saw the corruption there. And then uh, after that, he put him in Wittenberg as a teacher. And knowing the Latin and knowing the Greek and the Hebrew, he began to study. And was, you might say his circumstances of life just lent itself to, hey, I need to find out what's what. And that's, that's where he began his journey. Wittenberg, even to this day, is a pretty small town. I know you were there, uh, I don't know how many years ago, and I was there last year. Uh, it's still a pretty small town, but he went there. Was there, there was a university there, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Frederick, was it? Uh, Elector Frederick. And uh, he was looking for scholars, mm -hmm. and uh, Stalpitz sent Luther there. Um, Langton ended up there, and many other very wise scholars. And uh, of course, in those days, you know, for a, a nobleman to have a university of renown was great. And so he was, you know, trying to promote his university. And that's where it all started as far as the Lutheran Reformation. Mm -hmm. Really, all of the Reformation sprung from there in its greatness there. Just an aside, Luther is still seen by the German people as a, you know, a very seminal figure in their history, even if they aren't, if they don't consider themselves, you know, Christians. Mm -hmm. Well, his, his influence goes far beyond the theological side of things. Um, the Reformation has far has had far-reaching effects on the whole Western world. Uh, if you just set aside the theology, the things that uh, transpired in the individualism, the freedom, uh, state, statehood, country, uh, citizenship, etc., it has far-reaching. You know, where the so-called middle class uh, sprung from the Reformation. There was the peasants and the nobility and the religious. You know, there was nothing in between. So when when Luther Luther kind of unwittingly kicked off the Reformation, right? He how how did that how did it all begin? Oh, unwittingly is a perfect word. Uh, you know, he's a he's a man, a theologian. He has questions. They uh, they would discuss things, and of course, the old ninety five thesis was nailed to the castle church in Wittenberg, and it was kind of a challenge. Hey, let's get together and talk about all of these ninety five theses or questions or comments. And let's go through this and talk about it with the local theologians, the local learned people. And absolutely, I'm sure, no intention that it go beyond that. Uh, unfor not unfortunately, I should fortunately, <laughs> providentially, um, someone got a hold of it who had a printing press. The printing press had been invented some years before, the Gutenberg Press. They printed it and started circulating it. And it got into a lot of different people's hands. Luther had sent it to a few others, like Albert of Mites, I think, who was a um, was he a bishop of Mites or something. Anyway, uh, eventually it got to the into the hands of the Pope, and caused the big stir. It started it, but it was really not you know the, the document itself really it doesn't address uh, justification. It, it's really not all, you know, if you look at the 95 Theses, other than the, the subject of repentance, it does address that. And it addresses the problem of indulgences. But it's really not that solid of a document theologically. Mm -hmm. But he knew that there was something going on. There was some corruption happening uh, mm -hmm. to, to some degree. And so that's why he, he really was, was 
I think he had a personality where he couldn't just kind of avoid the subject and kind of move on. He he wanted to really tackle it head on. Oh, he had a personality. Wow, did he? <laughs> so <laughs> he could be what? obnoxious. You know, he could be wonderful. He could be caring. He could be loving. He could be obnoxious. He could be crude. Mm-hmm. He loved his beer. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave it there. But, you know, Luther was Luther. But God used him in an amazing way, unwitting, unwittingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't stop there. It, uh, you know, the thing started there, and he kept writing. Uh, early on, you have the Heidelberg Disputation. Just a year later, uh, if you've read Gerhard Oferti's uh, book on that, uh, on being a theologian to the cross, wow, the theology really started to develop, mm. and the questions were flying, and uh, and the challenge was out there. So what what happened? So the Pope gets a hold of the ninety five thesis, and what does he do? Well, he's kind of upset, of course, you know, because he's challenging these indulgences. And Albert of Mites, in fact, had uh, got these indulgences going because he had had to borrow money from the Fuggers, who were the big banking people in Germany. And uh, he had to repay them. So the Pope wanted money, and and so did Albert of Mites. And, you know, so they worked this deal, and Luther's challenging it, that it's something they shouldn't be doing. You know, I wish I had the thesis right in front of me, but, you know, the Pope could just forgive everyone's sins. Why did they have to pay for it? You know, why did they have to ask for it? And on and on it went, but it was, uh, it was politically not good. It was financially not good. The Pope was angry and at this crazy German, drunk German monk, and he wanted him to be stopped. Uh, so what so, did the Pope do to try to stop him? Well, he had the bull, I guess, the papal bull, and uh, for Luther to recant. He, he was given a certain number of days to recant, but I think the bull got to Luther when it was too late already. And Luther being kind of different in his own way, he just took it, lit it on fire, and burned it in front of the whole town and <laughs> said, you know, fooey on so, you. So this is kind of an interesting time period as well, the 1500s, where the church by far was the biggest power structure in the world. Uh, it was. The, the Catholic church. And so imagine, you know, this, he was part of it, but he was basically saying, no, I, this is not the biggest power structure. We should be going by the scripture, by the, by the Bible. The Bible should be the authority here. He was challenging their power at that time, which, you know, they're, nowadays you have like federal governments and you have, you know, the UN and you have all these power structures. But at that time, especially the Catholic church was by far the biggest power and he was challenging it head on it almost seems like they by by trying to stop it so hard that they helped it along that their their reaction to squelch it only furthered the cause of reformation because even though they were the power structure as i understand it they didn't quite have the power to actually get to luther right there there was a lot of things going on I, i think that you know from from the, you know, we look at it theologically, which is the, the main point I look at it, but step back a little bit and look at history itself in the secular sense. You know, you've got a lot of things playing in here. Um, you've got the Turks, that's number one. You got the Turks, the Muslims. Mm-hmm. They're knocking on the door of the Western world. They're, they're coming West and they're gonna take over. So you've got Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. He's up against it. And uh, now you have this reformation and this infighting and all these divisions. You got Germany getting a little bit crazy. You got Switzerland getting crazy. You got all these things and things are dividing and the emperor's going, wait a minute. Um, 
I need your help. We got the Turks coming against us. And uh, so there's a lot of things happening. You know, the Pope, Luther wasn't against the Pope to begin with. He thought mm. the Pope had nothing to do with this stuff. Mm. Eventually he found out different, but um, there, was, there was just a lot of things playing into it. Uh, the people in Germany were starting to like this idea of being German rather mm -hmm. than just being a part of the Holy Roman Empire. So you get this um, patriotism almost. Mm -hmm. and then you have Frederick saying, this is my man, he's causing a stir, but hey, my, my uh, university is getting a lot of notoriety. <laughs> All these things playing in. Yeah. And Frederick was one of the electors. And so he elected, he helped uh, Charles V get into office. There's a lot of things playing in here. But the yeah. main thing that comes down to is Luther's being protected, and again, unwittingly, as the hand of the Lord works, from he's being protected. Where John Huss, 100 years before, when he was dealt with, he was brought to be questioned and then immediately burned at the stake. Yeah. Even his, uh, what do they call it, safe passage, they just threw it out the window and killed him. Yeah. Which they could have done with Luther, except all these things are playing in. And so the Germans are saying, hey, if you take our man, we're not going to help you with the Turks. So there's a lot of historic events lining up. That's fascinating. So, so Frederick protected Luther from the Catholic church. Now I, um, uh, what I'm wondering is, um, so the, the Catholic church starts coming after Luther. Um, Charles V starts trying to mediate things, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what, what happened, what happened there? How did Charles V try to try to help things out? Well, yeah, of course, you know, I have the diet of worms, you know, where Luther's called. Uh, where they ate a what? bunch of worms? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was stationed not far from there in the, in the army, but uh, quite an interesting city. That's Worms, uh, Worms, Germany. Yeah. It's, it's plain worms. That's how it's <laughs> and uh, it was a can of worms for the Catholic Church. But yeah. what happened was, you know, Frederick said, you can try my, you know, my professor, but you have to do it in within Germany. So Charles comes to Worms, and Luther goes to Worms, and that's where he has this famous I, you know, "Here I stand." Here I stand. You know, mm -hmm. there's different ways of describing it, but it's wonderful. It's amazing. He put refuses, his life, refuses put his to life, recant life yeah. on the line there. Yeah, and uh, he had he say? safe passage. Um, unless that? I can be, uh, what did he say? Unless I can be convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I, mm -hmm. and not by councils or popes, I will not recant. That's Here right. I stand, I can do no other. Yeah. They had put all his writings out and asked him to recant them all, and he couldn't because some of them were good. You know, anyway, it, in a long, long story short, is he just said no. And uh, they were still going to take him, and his life was in grave danger, but they spirited him away from there. <clears throat> and uh, Who's I think they? at nighttime. Hmm? Who's they? Well, uh, came to find out later, it was Frederick. Mm. And, uh, but he, so as, he got kidnapped? Well, on his way back to Wittenberg, the so-called kidnappers grabbed him and took him to Wartburg Castle. And he thought he was being caught by the emperor's, um, his enemies, but actually it was his friend, Emperor, I mean, uh, uh, Frederick. And, and they did uh, that, uh, from what I understand, they did that so that they could have plausible deniability to the Pope, but so that Frederick could simply say, oh, I, I had nothing to do with that. He was just captured. Right. 
Yeah. And, and nobody knew where he was, off an obscure place called uh, Wartburg Castle. We, we toured it. It's a beautiful place to go and see. So he was hidden away there safely for a period of time. Um, and in the meantime, again, you got all these problems going on and all this unrest among the people. And uh, sadly, at that time as well, you had what uh, Luther described as a swarmerai or like a bunch of bees buzzing around your head, uh, the radicals, and they started to take over. And Luther was, I think, 10 months at Warburg Castle. He didn't just sit there and play golf when he was there. Um, he actually started translating the Bible into the German language. Mm -hmm. I think finished the New Testament and was starting to work on the Old Testament as well. So he and was that... being very productive, but he didn't like being there. And when he heard of all the uprising and the problems with, with some of the theologians back in Wittenberg, Karlstad, for one, uh, he just couldn't take it anymore. And he left the castle and returned to Wittenberg and tried to stop the, the craziness of what people were doing, the radical reformation, which started about that. Right, because once the doors started opening and people started opposing the church, it was almost like floodgates then, bunch That's of different right. doctrines coming out. Right, yeah. and, and just, uh, they were, you know, they were busting the stained glass windows in the church. They were knocking down all the statues. They were iconoclasts. They, uh, they didn't want any, you know, it's, you can follow that thread of uh, theology into the Reformed Church and beyond that. Anabaptists, they, you know, and on and on it goes. They called that the continuation of that, the continuing Reformation, where it felt like they didn't want to stop at reforming the church and bringing it back to where it should be they wanted to just completely throw it away and start over almost burn it all and, down and luther was not on board with that he was not at all. He, he considered himself a catholic yes all he wanted was to reform go mm -hmm. back to where they belong yeah. and the non-essentials like you know whether a preacher wears a robe or has a cross or there's a stained glass window that had nothing to do with his reformation or his belief that's so why the, the Lutheran Church today, the, the confessional Lutheran Church today, is sometimes looked at as, you know, kind of like a Catholic because they have, you know, the more high church, you might say, um, practices and appearances, liturgical. Exactly. So what were the doctrines that were important to Luther at the time of the Reformation? You mentioned vocation. Can you, can you speak on that for a little bit? Well, there's, there's a number of them. And of course, first and foremost is justification, you know, by grace, through faith in Christ, you know, the solas. Would you define justification for our listeners? Justification in a, you know, in a simple way um, is, oh boy, simple way. <laughs> How do we start here? Okay, to be justified. In other words, to be in full agreement and on the same page, like you would you justify or you'd reconcile your bank account where you're in full agreement. Well, sinner and God, how are you going to bring them back together? And the justification theology or doctrine of justification is by grace. In other words, God has declared us just. And it's by faith or through faith because we believe in Christ Jesus, period. That column of justification stands all alone. It has none of the non-essentials or even the other doctrines that we might have maybe more room to discuss and, and work through. But Justification by faith, by grace through faith in Christ alone, is on. It's the doctrine on which the church either stands or, or falls. Period. 
So it, it ranks number one, I guess you could say. How is a man justified? The answer to that. Now, going back to the Catholic Church, you had the things like indulgences. You might ask a Catholic today, you know, do you believe in justification by grace through faith? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. But if you put that word alone on there, they have a problem. Because they'll say things like, you're justified by grace um, through faith. Um, working through love. Working through love. You know, they would add things to it. And then love would begin to be the defining um, doctrine. And do you love God enough? Do you love your neighbor enough? It goes right back to law. So what about, what about the doctrine of vocation? You'd mentioned that. Okay. What is that? What yeah. is all that all about? Well, that would be one that would fit in there as well uh, as, as some other ones too. And, and I think it's a, it's a pretty important one because we went back to the old uh, part of our discussion where, you know, you had the religious, you had the laity and the religious. Well, the religious, their quote vocation made them, serve God or, or allowed them to serve God. Were the was it perhaps to... part of their justification in, in right. a sense that, yeah, so it does go hand right. in hand there. Yeah. Yeah. Like even today though, interestingly today, you'll hear people talk about their ministry. Well, if you look deeply in what they're saying is that they're doing something religious, mm. that's their ministry. But the doctrine of vocation says that your ministry is your vocation. Mm. If you are a truck driver, if you are a doctor, if you are a garbage collector, if you're a mother, which ranks very high in, in Luther's teaching, that is your vocation and that is your ministry. You are serving God by changing the diapers of your children. You are serving God by picking up my, my garbage this morning at home. Otherwise, it'd be piled up outside my house and there'd be contamination, there'd be rats. They are helping me, they are serving God their ministry is helping me. We often think of a pastor being in the ministry, and we say that, and that's understandable, but you have to be careful. Vocation is a, a vitally important uh, doctrine that should be understood, and people unfortunately don't. So I'll, I'm here to ask the dumb questions, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring in one of those. Uh, so what would be the difference between a, a Christian who is, uh, you know, picking up the garbages and someone who is not a Christian, you know, would they, you say like the vocation, the, the ministry is that picking up, it's, it's that part, but what's, there's a key, there must be a key element missing there because the person who's not a Christian would be doing, it wouldn't be quite the same, right? Well, yeah, it, you know, we, it could kind of maybe send us down the road a little bit into talking about, um, you know, the, um, the passive righteousness, which is the justification mm. teaching. God has justified us, okay? That's passive. We had nothing to do with it. But then as a Christian, now I serve God by loving my neighbor. And, and, and you might call that um, an act of righteousness, really, mm -hmm. or good works. And I'm doing that because I am a child of God, and it is, you know, imputed righteousness is involved. Just one layer level, level lower, maybe, if you want to use it as far as an illustration, is you have civil righteousness, you know, the guy that picked up my, my garbage, he was doing a good work. Yeah. Now, he doesn't have that vertical passive righteousness attached to it. So in a way, it isn't good works in the true sense of the word, but it's still civil righteousness. It's still serving you. He is, yeah. absolutely. He's serving God by serving me 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as an unbeliever, he doesn't have that passive righteousness. Whatever you have passive. done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done for me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. So it's, it's, um, it's sort of an attribute that, that is attached sort of involuntarily to the things that you're already doing. And it becomes, it kind of like becomes a piece, a part of that. And it's kind of like we, we're removing ourselves from this equation a lot of times because God is doing things in his, and this, this is a common theme in, in Lutheran, Lutheran theology where it's not about our, our own, you know, good works, our own value. It's about what God does for us. Yeah, that was one of the big things that kind of changed for me was the doctrine of vocation and realizing that um, it's not about me and what I'm doing, but it's about Christ and what he did for me. Because I used to always think that unless I was going, you know, I, I remember talking to you about going on a mission trip, Ron. Or I remember thinking that in order to be useful to God, I had to be doing something and it had to be overtly religious. It couldn't just be volunteering at the food shelf. It had to be volunteering at the food shelf and preaching and handing, you know, and, and talking to people about God. It couldn't just be a good thing in itself. It had to have something spiritual attached to it. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, that was kind of the watershed moment in my life. I remember as a young man, I, I sat across the, the living room from my uncle and said, I think I'm going to go on a mission trip. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but, but you asked me a simple question. You asked me, what are you going to say on this mission trip? He said, if you're going to be a missionary, what are you going to say? And I said, I don't know. I'll, I'll think of something, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, you, you kind of you nicely suggested that I should figure out what I'm going to say. And you, you, told, you used the word rooted and grounded in the scripture. And, and that was very meaningful, is, is understanding um, that, that dynamic of, um, you know, you don't have to you know, you know, you, you want to, you know, you, you, you feel the call to some kind of ministry and you feel like, okay, I got to go do something right now. And you don't understand that God is already working in and through you at the school that you're attending, at the church that you're going to, at the grocery where you pick up your groceries, um, that, that God has promised to work through you wherever you are. And, uh, and, and so that, that, that's, that's why the, the doctrine of vocation is something that uh, with, um, in understanding that it, it really did change my outlook on a lot of things and really offer true assurance because the, the other idea is that, well, it's all about you and what you're doing and you're never going to do enough. Right, right. And it, you use that word assurance there. Every, mm-hmm. every doctrine, uh, even if it's one like vocation or maybe uh, you know, the doctrine of two kingdoms, we could talk about that as well, very pertinent for today. But, you know, doctrines that are lost or misunderstood and, uh, you know, they, they support our heart's uh, um, need for assurance. And unfortunately, at the time of Luther and in our modern day as well, a lot of young people especially, you know, they, they start to think that how can I serve God? You know, how can I have more assurance that I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? And their thoughts are directed toward some kind of mission work, for instance, or ministry. And people will say, you know, this is my ministry. But they don't recognize that your ministry is doing what you have been called to do, your vocation. And that may include some religious calling, some spiritual things, but it doesn't have to. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's, 
that's just one, the doctrine of two kingdoms. You know, there's everything. You, you could go to the Augsburg Confession to begin with, I guess. That would what, be, what was the, the Augsburg the, Confession? Well, you've got, okay, let's see, backpedal a little bit here. You've got the 95 Thesis, you've got some other writings. And, and by the way, Martin Luther wrote a lot. He mm -hmm. wrote a lot. Um, but let, the Augsburg Confession, let's just, we'll stick with that for a little bit. Um, when things were really falling apart, and, and again, King Charles is kind of desperate, we've got to get this, we've got to get people back together so we can fight this war with the Turks. So he comes to Augsburg and he calls the, the theologians, the, the leaders of the Lutheran Reformation or the Lutheran group to bring their confession to him and to present it. Well, uh, a young theologian, uh, Philip Melanchthon, who is now a professor at Wittenberg, a brilliant man, uh, astoundingly brilliant young man, he begins to work on that and with the help and the approval of others like Luther, he doesn't just do it on his own, he puts together what's called the Augsburg Confession. And uh, he and the other theologians go to Augsburg to present it to Charles. Now Luther can't go because he's still under the papal bull and he's been declared a heretic and anyone can shoot him without having any criminal, or not shoot him, kill him, period. Mm -hmm. Any person can kill Luther at any time. No charges will be sent against him. So he's got to be careful where he goes, and he can't go to Augsburg. But they present, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a document that we hold as one of our number one confessions, you might say. And so in June of 1530, they present the Augsburg Confession to the emperor. The Roman church is there as well, and um, the princes the theologians who signed the Augsburg Confession are there and they put their, their life on the line. And they say, you know, again, sort of like here we stand, you know, and the emperor is upset, you know, because they don't agree with the Roman church and there's no, no agreement, but there's nothing he can do. And he has to allow them to hold to their confession. So the Augsburg Confession is a beautiful um, document now, the Romans, of course, had the so-called refutation, which they, interesting, mm -hmm. we could spend hours on just that whole history of the Augsburg Confession, but they had their so-called refutation against them, but they wouldn't even give them a copy of it. Yeah. So the theologians, and I think, you know, some of the brilliant guys who were there at the time took notes, and then they responded with the apology to the Augsburg Confession, and that was all Blankton's doings himself, a brilliant document and uh, confession, a much more um, detailed response to all the questions about the various articles. And I have copies of it, of course, in, in the office and in my Bible, I carry a copy of it, but there's, there's a number of articles. It starts right off with God, the mm -hmm. theology of God. It goes from God to sin, original sin. Then article three is the son of God. Article four is justification. Very interesting. The, the order of it is just perfect. You yeah. deal with God, the Father. You deal with sin, the problem of sin. You deal with the Son of God who dealt with our sin debt. And then you have the article of justification. And then interestingly, article five goes right into the office of the ministry, whereby mm -hmm. God then brings to us those things which he has, he delivers to us through the through the preaching of the gospel and the administering of the sacraments.
Right. So, so this is much more than a political dispute of the early 1500s that happened to, uh, you know, uh, kind of culminate in these this flurry of documents back and forth. This is something that actually lays out fundamentals of the Christian faith in a much more uh, in a in an applicable way to today when we're talking about the Apostolic Lutheran Church. That's kind right. Of- it kind of, to me, it kind of shows, um, it, it seems like just the perfect gift from God when there's all this craziness and all these people looking to push the envelope more and more now that they're, they feel some freedom from the Catholic Church um, to say, wait a minute, this is what we believe. That's, that's really a good point, because one of the reasons why this was so important was that the reformers, so-called, were going in every direction. And so the church, the, the Roman church, was accusing Luther and the theologians of Wittenberg of doing some crazy things. So their response is, no, here's what we believe, teach, and confess. Very defi- definitive, very clear. To distinguish themselves from the reformers of, you know, like uh, Zwingli and the Anabaptists who had gone really way too far. So this kind of documents where they're at yeah. and distinguishes them from the, the, the enthusiasts, as he called them, that went way too far in the Reformation. So what were the enthusiasts? Well, th- th- there's a whole range of them. I mean, Zwingli himself being one, um, Luther, you know, debated with him. They were on board together on most things. The Lord's Supper, they had a separation there. But also, you know, he, uh, Zwingli was kind of a rebel by nature. In fact, I think he died in fighting against um, some of the, the army of the emperor, etc. And then you had the Anabaptists who didn't believe that their first baptism as a child was legitimate. You had, uh, again, the iconoclast that anything that looked like Rome was wrong. And, uh, you know, it just goes on and on. The enthusiasts are just a way that Luther described those that got so enthusiastic about this change that they went way too far. They threw the, the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Exactly. exactly. Now, now, this is it's very interesting, but I know that some people listening to this may have the question, why was this necessary? You already have the Bible. You know, uh, Martin had had translated to the German language, so now it was accessible to the German people. Uh, You have the Bible. Why did he need to do all these other writings? Why did they have to have these documents that lay all these other things out? I know we've talked about this in in our previous episode, but but in terms of the Reformation and then, of course, the the Augsburg Confession and the other parts that have kind of come into our 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 uh, uh, the documents, what, why do we have those and not just the Bible? Mm-hmm. Well, that question is thrown around today a lot. Um, I, it probably wasn't so much at that time because, you know, they were kind of forced to, um, to put these together, to present them. They were, they were forced to present to Emperor Charles what they believed and also to distinguish themselves from those who the, the Roman church could show that they were actually off the tracks and unbiblical. So they, at that time, there was you know, no question about it. Um, today, with the, you know, the variety of denominations and you know, everything from uh, the most uh, high church, Lutheran confessional church to 
the Reformed Church to the Anabaptists to the Baptists to the, you know, way out there, uh, Joel Olstein's sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just good to have something that you can refer to. This is what I believe, teach, and confess. And it defines what you believe the Bible says, because all of us hold the Bible. And yet we have various understandings of what the Bible teaches. And so it, it shouldn't be offensive. You know, we don't hold them on an equal plane with the Bible. The Bible is the standard. Everyone believes that the Bible is the standard if you're a Christian. But then why do we have differences of opinion? You know, like here, if we were talking today and we started to debate a certain um, doctrine of the Bible, we may come up with two different uh, understandings. But what's wrong with writing down what you believe and presenting it to someone? People will hold up the Bible. This is my only um, confession. This is what I believe. I don't go anywhere else. But yet they'll go listen to a preacher who interprets what that Bible passage says. Right. And so that's his interpretation of it. Yeah, and we can see that even with the problems that they were encountering at that time. They were doing all of these things that were very, very much unbiblical. And yet the the Catholic Church was saying, you know, we are following, you know, God's will. And they had the Bible. They would read the Bible. And yet they were doing all of these things that were wrong. And really throughout the Augsburg Confession and all of Luther's writings, it's just a constant uh, referring to scripture, quoting scripture, talking about scripture. It's very much sola scriptura. It's very much centered on the word as being the authority. So they're not trying to supplant the word. They're just simply trying to lay out what we believe this word is saying. That's right. In their, in their writings, you'll notice in the Augsburg Confession and others, they refer to the Bible they use scripture passages to support what they were teaching. Mm-hmm. And they also even, interestingly, they will include uh, some of the church fathers, early teachings of the early church to show that this is not some novel teaching, that this is the teaching of the early church. We are still following the Catholic with a small c mm-hmm. teaching of the Bible, the universal church. Uh, but the whole idea of, you know, we don't need confessions. I, I got a, a package in the mail, and uh, I know that those who are listening can't see, but, you know, since we're on Zoom, you can see, you see the size of this book? It's pretty thick. It's, I got that book in the mail, too. Yeah, it's like two and a half, three inches thick. It weighs about a ton and a half. The I got this. Principle, the what's that called? What's that book called? It's the, conf- the Confessional Principle in the Confessions of the Lutheran Church. And I got it, and I opened it, and the first thing I did was send an email to the guy that sent it to me, a Christian brother from the East Coast. I said, you got to be kidding. You know, what, am I supposed to, you know, hold, hold my pickup up while I'm changing the tire with this thing or what? <laughs> you don't expect me to read this. Yeah. Well, as you can see, although the people who are listening can't, I have read this book. Yeah. He pointed me to two little short passages, and I was hooked. Mm. It's wonderful. It talks about the confessional principle, why, why it's valuable to have a confession. One thing about it, okay, I'm a pastor of this church. Nick, you're a pastor of your church. Now, is, is the theology of that church your theology? Um, as much as I'd like it to be, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a confession protects the people from the innovation of a pastor who wants yeah. people to follow him. Yeah, right. 
you can point to this as the teachings of the Bible, of course, first, mm-hmm. but also that the history of the church, it's, it's no longer the, you know, unfortunately today we have too much of celebrity pastors and preachers. Yeah. And we, we almost always see them end in a fiery crash. It's, it's, Isn't that sad? It's it happens sad. all the time. Uh, this holds the, the pastors accountable is what it, it does. Is. It does. And fortunately, I believe, I strongly believe that the confessions of the Lutheran Church are biblical. Yeah. So I'm not just holding on to something and saying, well, this is what grandpa believed. Right? By the way, we should probably we should probably mention, you know, when we're talking about confessions, we're not talking about confession and absolution. This Correct. confession has a couple of different meanings. The meaning we're using here is more like if you were to stand up and say, well, this is what I believe. And you kind of like, you know, pound your, your <laughs> fist on the table and say, I am confessing to everybody that this is what I believe. Um, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's a thing where you're, you're taking a stand. Yeah. It's a confession of faith. Yes. yes. Confession not of faith, a, not, not a confession, confession of confession of what yeah. we believe, not a confession of sin. Yeah. Right. And, and ours in particular is of course kind of bound up in that one book called the book of Concord. Yeah. And I know that's a, you know, that's a controversy in our Apostolic Lutheran Church. I understand that. It's another subject itself. But yeah. in our documents, in our founding documents of our church, it's referred to. Um, there's yeah, in, the, in the bylaws here in Mills, we don't mention the Book of Concord, but we do mention the Augsburg Confession, the Small and Large Catechism, and the three ecumenical creeds. And we say that's our doctrine. And it actually says in our bylaw that we won't accept any new ones. That every all the preaching in our church has to conform to those things. That's right. There, and so a, for me, there was some real value when there were controversies and people were saying, "Well, why are you preaching this?" I was able to open that bylaw book and say, "Look, I yeah. am oath bound to preach this." <laughs> and 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 of course, the small and large catechism were written by Martin Luther. That brings it right back to that. Yeah, he's not and the honestly, author of, of all of the all of the parts of the Book of Concord, but he has a substantial contribution yeah. obviously you have melanchthon you have others you have martin chemnitz and uh, you have the formula of concord um yeah many others who contributed but interestingly going back to this i make this confession and like you said nick you know you're bound to this now as a christian with a conscience you would not preach that theology if you did not agree with it yeah you, you right. know and so when people say you're just bound to that don't, you know, I'm not doing something against my will or against my conscience. I appreciate it and agree with it and preach it and teach it. And I believe it. it. And I, I find assurance in this biblical teaching of justification by faith alone. Yes. Yeah. And many people who have, you know, the problem, again, Reformation. You think about our church. I know that there's been a lot of stirring and controversy over this thing. And I maybe have gone too far myself. Uh, and trying to influence people with it. And I pray that I haven't done too much damage. But, you know, I have found a lot of people who have finally just stopped and said, well, I'm going to look at this. Just the other day, a young man talked to me from our church. He'd been reading the Book of Concord. He'd been listening to some podcasts uh, from a Lutheran perspective, and he wanted to know what I thought. And I was so encouraged. I said, just, just listen. Give it a chance. Read it and listen. You know, nobody's forcing anyone to do this. But I think that you would be pleasantly surprised if you would give it a chance. And this is what reform is. But unfortunately, with reform, as it was in the days of Luther, and it's even today, because reform is always going on. It's always going on. 
And today, it can bring on what is called an epistemological crisis, which is just a big way of saying, how did you learn what you learned? Mm. You know, what is it that brought you to where you are? And if somebody comes with something else, oh boy, we got a crisis here. You know, you could have a, a framework of your epistemology or the way you learn could be, you know, how do I know what I know? Well, you know, if there's authority, you could say Albert Einstein said this, and he's an authority, so that's why I believe it. Yeah. Many other things, you know, grandpa said it or something. How do I know it? You know, with my senses, I touched it, so I know it. Um, there's a lot of different epistemological um, framework that we have and, you know, logic. A is greater than B and A and B is greater than C. So therefore A is greater than C. You know, you put these things together. Somebody comes along and challenges your thoughts. There's a crisis. I, from my perspective, and I know we're, we're getting pretty long in this, this episode, but it's been really fascinating. From my perspective, I feel like to, to a, uh, I don't know, I guess it would be a matter of, of opinion how far off we got, but the Apostolic Lutheran Church kind of went away from the, the confessions for a while, even though we were founded on it, and that there's been a return to that more recently that I think has been very welcome. It's been something that has in a lot of ways, kind of settled the church, the Apostolic Lutheran Church. It has helped kind of guide, you know, some of the decisions that are being made, the things that are being preached, so that there aren't things that are wildly different being preached from the pulpit. I know that there were, uh, there are stories about what happened in the Hawkinson pulpit in years past, you know, where one preacher would get up and preach one thing, and then the next person would get up and, and preach the exact opposite um, and so having a return to the confessions means it's not just, a you know, okay, Ron Holmgren's going to be the pastor and now he's going to bring a third version, you know, to, to the pulpit. It becomes more, okay, let's return to what do we actually believe as, as Lutherans, as apostolic Lutherans, but also as Lutherans. And then let's, let's start there. That, that should be our guiding principles. It's all based on the Bible, but it's not just some interpretation that goes left, right, center up down every other direction right you know like down the road there may be let's say a baptist or a presbyterian church okay their you know their theology their principles their confessions are one ours are lutheran uh, it's our last name apostolic lutheran you know it would be wrong to try to go reform a baptist church because to reform a baptist church you can reform it to the baptist teachings right but a Lutheran church, it's okay to reform it to a Lutheran church. Right. And so, you know, people have an issue there. And I'll, I'll say, well, what is our last name? Mm -hmm. Our last name is Lutheran. And, and, you know, is it so strange to think that there might be a Lutheran among the Lutherans? Yeah. Um, so I think that it's, it's worth, you know, carefully and prayerfully and with Christian love, reevaluate our teachings. Yeah. And I think that's happened uh, for sure uh, over, you know, certainly in the last, I would say, at least 20 years. Um, there's also been a huge time of change happening in the last 20 years where there, all of these things are much more available than they used to be. You can go, I just Googled it while you were talking, the Augsburg Confession. I was following along as you were talking. Anybody who's listening to this podcast can go do that right now from their phone. This is an amazing time to, to be able to bring all of this information in. I think it's even more important than ever because of that to have something 
solid to stand on that isn't just changing based on, you know, many different interpretations of, of scripture. Yeah, I, um, uh, I think we are running out of time, but I have two more questions for you, Ron. Earlier on, we asked you about, um, a moment that things kind of clicked for you. And, uh, I had a moment like that when I was at a study at your house and we were reading on being a theologian of the cross. And um, I learned the dis I learned what the theology of the cross was as opposed to the, the theology of glory. And um, I'm wondering if maybe you could explain those two concepts for us, the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Right. <laughs> oh boy. Well, and maybe I'll, but maybe I'll just start by saying, um, the, the big thing for me was understanding um, that uh, a theologian of glory is all about, well, glory, you know, receiving glory for what you've done, receiving, um, you know, making it about you and what you're doing, kind of like what we talked about with the doctrine of vocation. And uh, how does the theology of the cross stand in opposition to someone who's seeking to glory in themselves? Okay, well, I think we could probably just end right there. I think you did a good job, but and I appreciate <laughs> it. I, it's, it's a little intimidating at time because the two the two phrases, okay, the 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 theologian of the cross, you know, that just sounds right. But the theologian of glory also sounds right because you know there's glory in being a Christian. God is a God of glory, etc. So so the verbiage is is a little bit tough. People can get like, wow, what are you trying to? you know, divide these two things, but you, you said it right. And, and you kind of have to look at Luther's, you know, Heidelberg Disputation. He's, you know, he, he's kind of a shocking way of dealing with that problem. We're, we're wired for law. A lot of this, a lot of this problem in the, that the Reformation tried to correct was that everything was toward what I do or what I don't do. Um, where, being a theologian of the cross, you view everything through the lens of the cross. God coming to me and offering himself to me as an antidote for the horrible disease I have, which is sin. Yeah, Based one of the, on that. You know, go oh, ahead. Sorry, one of, the, one of the biggest things for me when it came to just simply going to church, when I understood that I wasn't going to church because I was being a good Christian, I wasn't going to church to... Um, as a point, as a work for myself, like I used to look at church as this good thing that I did. And when I began to look at church as this good thing that God is doing for me, it really changed my life and changed mm -hmm. the way I even heard his word when it was less about me and what I'm doing, but about Christ and what he did for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, yeah. going back to that word of assurance, because have you ever, ever been satisfied with what you were doing? or what you have done or have not done, you know, and we know that the Bible speaks two words. It speaks the word of sin. It speaks the word of grace. We understand it confronts our sin. It confronts what we do and what we don't do. We understand that. Uh, one of the greatest, uh, I think, uh, theologians on the subject of the dis proper distinction between long gospel is C.W. Walther. He's got a book out that I love. You know, that's where the problem lies. It's a mixing of law and gospel. It's a mixing and it becomes what one guy, I remember he, he, he said it so well, it's gospel, G-L, you know, you're just mixing up law and gospel. Yeah, and it's just, uh, it's, it's a fabulous book. Uh, I see you've got a copy of it there, Nick, and it's worth reading. Um, C.W. Walther was a, 
uh, I think it was uh, the first uh, LCMS um, president or whatever of the LCMS church way back. Yeah, I, th I believe right. I was at a yard sale and uh, one of my members came up to me and handed this to me and said, I think you would like this. Hmm. Yes. And, Great. Uh, I very much did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing is that the theology or the theologian of glory is, is always, like you said, looking to the things of me. It's, it's like we're curved inward looking at ourselves rather than looking up to the cross, mm -hmm. looking to the work of Christ. It's a subtle distinction, but it's such an important one. It's not about you. It's about Christ for you. Yes. Yes. And that's what our whole Christian existence is. And on account of that, then come the good works. Like it says in yeah. Ephesians, we, uh, let me see if I can quote it. We're, we're saved by grace through faith, um, not of works. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. For we are mm -hmm. his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God has pre before ordained that we should walk in them. Yes. Some, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that, that, yeah, by grace you have been saved through faith. Now there are good works that God has prepared for us to walk in, not to earn anything, but that God is doing through us, that theology of vocation wrapped into it. Right. And that's where I think there's true peace and rest truly in what Christ has done. Yep. Come unto me, all ye who labor, and I will give you rest. And this is exactly what Jesus does for all of us. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, in the Augsburg Confession, one of the great uh, parts of our, the confession of our church, Article 6, that's what it deals with, and that is the new obedience. Mm. It follows, you know, the, the great articles of God and sin and Christ and justification and the office of the ministry to bring these, you know, like you say, you go to church because God meets you there, mm -hmm. comes to you and hear, you hear his voice in the message, you receive his grace in the sacrament, etc. And, and then you mm -hmm. go out as his children in the new obedience into a world that is dying with the very essence of life itself on your lips and in your heart. Yes. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. um, so my last, my last question for you is if there was one um, uh, doctrine or point about the Reformation that you would want our listeners to remember forever, what would that be? What's the, what's the, what's, what's something that if, if you want, what's the takeaway to this episode? If they're just going to remember what one, one thing, what do you want them to remember? Well, um, I think I, I, I think of, it sounds like it's more than one doctrine, but it isn't. But that's, you know, you remember the Luther Rose? You yeah. know, it's, you know, you can see it, you can find it online. I've often thought about carving it on my new CNC machine, the Luther mm. Rose. Oh, know? yeah. Get, uh, sign me up for one of those if you do. <laughs> yeah. you know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone. You know, yeah. it's, it's the work of God alone for you. You know, it's for you. Like in his catechism, you know, you, you know to, to receive the sacrament worthy, you have to have faith in these words given and shed for you. Mm -hmm. It's coming in the right direction. Where before in the, in the sadness of the Roman church and unfortunately today too often heard on the radio and in other theologies, it's about what you are doing for God. And that, that, that just flows into every other doctrine, large or small in our eyes. All of these other doctrines will either shine with that for you or will detract by saying, what are you doing for him? 
I, you know, that's kind of a general response. Yeah, that's so basically what you're saying is it's the theology of the cross. Absolutely. And that's what that's that's what's so awesome about that doctrine is because it is all encompassing. It's mm -hmm. really when when you think of the Reformation, I can't help but think about that. Um, mm -hmm. I this this last Sunday, I um, last Sunday was Reformation Sunday. Um, I realized that when I got done with it, um, I didn't. I, I focused mainly on the theology of the cross and the theology of glory. And I, I, I was like, man, I left out. So when you were talking about vocation, I was like, I forgot to even mention that in my sermon. <laughs> about the theology of the cross, it is all encompassing. Mm -hmm. And that's what it is. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. really a beautiful thing. Well, Ron, I'd like to thank you for joining us. And thank you, Jamin. It was good to have you guys here. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there was, there's much more even to this subject, we were, we've been here for quite some time, but it's a, it's a very deep subject. We'll probably have to revisit it in a future episode, but I'm, I, I think that was a good, took a good crack at it. Yeah. I, and I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on and being with the two of you. I've, I've enjoyed it. I was a little intimidated thinking about it, but I think you're <laughs> right. You could revisit it. Maybe a suggestion, break it down into a little, little smaller yeah. parts because Boy, we yeah. tried to cover a lot of ground. Yeah, so you're you're signing up for the first part. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It has been good. I, I God bless yeah. you and your podcast. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that you're doing this. Alrighty, yeah. Well, that's good. Um, it, it just kind of worked out to to where some blocks fell into piece to fell into place to make it happen. It was something that was kind of intimidating for me, but COVID mm -hmm. kind of forced us all to adapt and get used to different means of technology, and this is one of them. Well, if I could be encouraging to, to the two of you, um, you know, I'm, I'm heading for the sunset. You know, I've got some woodworking to do in my shop. And, uh, but these, these uh, means of delivering what, um, what treasure we have in Christ uh, should be used, should be exploited. And uh, I think for the young, it may be a, a great tool to get the message out. I well, think I think so it's too. important to to get all these these things you've studied uh, out of your brain and and into these types of episodes so we can pass them on. Uh, I don't want to read all those books, Dad. So, <laughs> yeah, good thing you have. Well, thanks again, guys. Um, well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to uh, send a special note of thanks to the Eastern Mission for sponsoring this. Of course, our goal is that this would be something that is self-sufficient. So if you'd like to support us, you could do so by becoming a patron on Patreon. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And as always, God's peace.